You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudocia and with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've heard or received, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we just give you all the glory. We ask that you will um, speak through me this morning. Let every heart be open to hear your word as we understand more about the peace that is promised to us and the gift that we can receive in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what I'd like to talk to us all this morning is about the promise of peace. Anxiety, fear, tension and panic attacks. Now these seem like reoccurring themes in much of conversation today. And in my preparation, I wanted to get a really great quote that um, focused on anxiety as it's an ever-present topic. So I googled it and I asked, are people more anxious today than ever before? And what do you think came up? What do you think the answer was? Yep, you're right. So from lots of articles, blogs, and um, different sources, everything essentially I um, came across all said, as you rightly thought, that, yeah, as a people, as a generation, we're far more anxious than we ever have been. And there were lots of different uh, reasons for this that were provided. Some said it was the increase of information through the internet. Some the 24-7 news cycle, social media, the pandemic, and even an increased awareness of anxiety and even talking about social health, uh, mental health. But whatever the reason may be, the fact remains that anxiety is very much a part of modern life. And that's what makes a promise of peace a way to actually deal with all of this anxiety so appealing for us all today. And in the UK, there's a, a mental health charity called Mind. And they say that one in four people have mental health problems with anxiety being the most common. And one in four, that's a really large number. If you think about everybody in the room today, that's a, at least a quarter of us. And they say that anxiety affects a body in a number of ways. One of the ways is feeling restless or unable to sit still. 
sleep problems, grinding your teeth, especially at night. They say it also affects the mind in ways such as having a sense of dread or fearing the worst or wanting lots of reassurance from other people or feeling that people are always angry or upset with you or maybe even low mood and depression. Now those are loads of effects. Sorry, loads of um, effects. But whilst they're not solely limited to anxiety, I'm sure all of us can acknowledge that maybe we've felt some of those things at least some part in our lives. So again, the promise of peace, or at least a solution to the as relief from the symptoms of those things would be a great thing that we could all um, benefit from. But now let's return to the scripture. As the Apostle Paul um, wrote these verses, he was addressing the anxiety that was happening in the church of Philippi and what they were experiencing at the time. And I'd like to give it just a little bit of context or background to what was happening um, at the time. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, um, but he's in prison at the time. Now, sometime before that, both him and Silas had visited Philippi. And whilst they were there, they were going around telling people about Jesus. And as they were, they encountered a young girl who was possessed by a demon. And they prayed for her, and then the demon uh, left her. The problem is that upset some of the people in the town. And they were so angry, they beat up Paul and Silas and threw them into prison. And whilst they were in prison... They were praising God and during that time there was an earthquake and the chains that were holding them fell off. But instead of escaping um, at at that time, they stayed locked up in prison and then the jailer, the person who was in charge, came and discovered them thinking that they would have escaped, found them there still seating, still seated down. And he was so amazed that they didn't escape that both him and his whole family gave their life to Jesus. But then in the morning, they were released and went about their business. So there were lots of things that happened when Paul and Silas were last in Philippi. But at the time, as I said, of writing this, Paul was in prison, but this time in Rome. And the reason why he was writing this letter is because somebody had brought news about what was happening back in Philippi in the church that he started. And one of the things that really stands out about this letter to the church in Philippi was the amount of love, connection and care that Paul expresses for the Philippians. In fact, the New English Bible sums up this book with a caption that says, Paul and his friends, which is, I think, quite a nice sentiment. Because in this letter, Paul expresses his love more emphatically for them than anywhere else that we read in the other books in the New Testament. And as we hear that, that helps us to understand the context and the backdrop in which Paul was writing to them. He was writing these words as a love and encouragement and challenge to those people that he was close to and deeply cared for. So bear that in mind as we, re- as we re- review these verses. But now we've got some context. What I'd like to do is talk a little bit more about the promise, the promise of peace. And I've got three points to share with you. And I know Tim likes to often preach with three points, so I thought I would do the same. So the first point is, number one, the promise of peace. Number two, the conditions for peace. And number three, the personification of peace. So number one, the promises of peace. Number two, the promises, sorry, the conditions for peace. 
And number three, the personification of peace. So the first thing, the promises of peace. Now the first thing that was promised was actually peace itself. And I came across a quote um, by Alanis Morissette, who I'm sure some of you will be aware of. She's a Canadian singer from the 90s, probably known a little bit more so here than in the UK. But she sung um, as part one of her lyrics for a song, peace of mind for five minutes, that's what I crave. Can anyone relate to that? I think, does anybody have small children? Okay, yeah, probably more so than uh, most of us. But five minutes might seem like a short time to expect peace, but actually it can feel like quite a lot, and especially to tide you over uh, for quite some time. And I think that demonstrates just how precious peace can be. And oftentimes people try and find it or make it anywhere they can, in relationships, in success, or even by being really nice to people. But the problem with that kind of peace is that it's really fragile. And whether it depends upon you or on other people, that kind of peace is really strained and you find that you have to work really hard to earn it and to keep it. And in fact, it doesn't really feel like peace at all. It can almost feel like a burden. But let's compare that peace to the peace that's spoken about in our passage. And in fact, in verse 7, it gives us one of the most beautiful assurances of peace found in the New Testament. I'll read it again. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, a really, really beautiful verse. And it's often used as an encouragement and a prayer for so many people that have experienced immense challenges and difficulties. Because this kind of peace, it goes beyond our human understanding. It's a kind of peace that doesn't make sense in the face of challenges. In fact, it's a supernatural gift from God. And that's the kind of peace that we need. It's the kind of peace that has given strength to Christians throughout the ages. And in fact, this would have been even more meaningful for the Philippians as they received that letter. Because they would have remembered Paul's own example when he was chained in prison, beaten and bloodied, but yet still singing praises in the middle of that dark cell. And the kind of peace that Paul was talking about that can be experienced even in those moments is what can be experienced by us now. The second promise of peace is a peace that will guide our hearts and minds. And in fact, that's another way of describing what we think with our minds, what we feel in our hearts And looking back earlier when I described the way that anxiety affects us, both in our minds and our bodies, having a peace that guards us both mentally and physically is exactly what we need because that's where we're most vulnerable. Now the word guard here is really pivotal. It creates an image of being on guard, of having an army that's standing there to protect and guard something. Again, if you think about a bodyguard, typically they're there to be in between you and a dangerous situation. Now, it doesn't mean that that dangerous situation doesn't exist. It's just that you have somebody in between you and that situation that protects you. That's a buffer. And it makes me think of Psalm 121, verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over you. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forever. And that's the kind of peace that's available. A guarded peace, a protected peace, 
And that's so what's desperately needed in today's anxiety-filled world. But it's not just that peace that's available to us, but actually God himself. And in fact, verse 9 ends with, and the God of peace will be with you. Which is easy to overlook, but it's the God of peace that will be with you. And strangely, this promise itself is often quite easy for us to take for granted because as human beings, we often take those people that are closest to us for granted. And I'm sure we can all appreciate that feeling, whether it's us ourselves that have been taken for granted and know how painful that is, or actually taking other people for granted ourselves. But picture this, the God of the universe the creator of everything, the king of kings, the lord of lords, being with you, loving you, caring for you, protecting you. And just let that thought sink in for a moment. And as you do, let the reality of his presence being with you and the peace that that brings, let that connect with your heart. But if that's a little too abstract or a little too difficult to picture, and since we're close to Hollywood, or at least closer than I am uh, back in London, think about um, Hallmark or Christmas movies and picture the classic scene of the smallest, weakest kid in class being bullied um, after school. And none of their friends or the teachers are around and the bullies have circled them and they're kicking, punching and hitting them. But in the distance, they just see their parents' car pull up And as the parent gets out of the car and starts moving closer, that child, they start to feel the fear that gripped them slowly dissolve and they begin to stand up straight and stop cowering. And at this point, the bullies are starting to get confused because they don't know what's happening. They can't see the parent drawing closer. And they get even more angry. And as they're about to land that next punch, the parent intervenes at that moment and protects the child. The bullies run away in fear. And the parent grabs that child, scoots them up into their arms and gives them a big hug. And it's easy to imagine in that moment what that child feels like. And that's a little bit of what this promise here that's available to us, but many, but multiplied many, many times over. That the God of peace, our Heavenly Father, being with us. But the reality of that To be honest, it's not how most of us live as Christians. And I was reflecting that even me this week, I had a really tough situation happening at work. And it was really playing on my mind to the point where it actually stopped me from sleeping. But recognising that the God of peace being with me is something that we all need to remember and focus on. Now the other promise of peace that's there, or rather understanding it, is just to know what kind of peace that's available to us and what's being promised here. Because when we think about peace, we might consider it as just being the absence of war or fighting, or even freedom from the anxiety and worry that we've been talking about so far. But peace that's described here is actually something deeper and richer. It's rooted in the Old Testament words shalom, which speaks to wholeness and unity. It includes peace with God, which is upward, peace with people and creation, which is outward, and peace peace within ourselves, which is internal. And that's a peace of God, which is available to the people of God. 
So those are the promises. And as with most promises, there are things that you need to do in order to achieve the desired outcome. So as these um, conditions are laid out in these verses, Paul actually doesn't call them conditions as I have. He gives them more as commands or directives. But rather than thinking them as sort of harsh words, remember the context as we spoke about earlier in which Paul is giving in this letter. Paul is sharing these things as loving commandments, knowing that if the Philippians and us too follow these things, then we can experience the peace of God. So let's take a moment to look at these conditions. The first one is found in verse 4. And it reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now Paul here, when he says rejoice, he's talking about rejoicing in God. And he's so insistent that we should rejoice that he says it twice, rejoice again. Now rejoice, it means to take great joy or delight in something. Now, I don't, we don't have children ourselves at the moment, um, but what we do have is a lot of plants. And in fact, we have a small house and we probably have about 50 plants. Um, and in the garden, we probably have about three times as many. But when on my favorite plants, I see that there's new growth, there's a new leaf that's growing, then I definitely experience that joy deep down within me. And I'm sure any other plant, plant parents can um, acknowledge and uh, agree with me. But again, here Paul is talking about rejoicing in God and that is so much more. And again, when I was thinking about that, there's two things that really stood out to me about rejoicing in God always. And the first was the word always, which is continuous, forever, with no breaks. And whilst I can appreciate rejoicing in God at certain times, like when things are going well, or maybe when I feel connected to God at a really good worship service, However, rejoicing in God always seems like a difficult thing to do. And the second thing, rejoicing in God sometimes sounds a little bit like toxic positivity. And if you, haven't, if you don't know what that term means, it can be defined as the act of avoiding, suppressing or rejecting negative emotions or experiences. And this can take the form of denying your own emotions or even somebody else's denying um, negative emotions and insisting on thinking positively instead. And when you hear what Paul is talking about here, it's really easy to think that actually what he's saying is you should just ignore all the bad stuff that happens in your life and just be happy because God is good. And in fact, you might have experienced this before, either somebody expressing a similar sentiment to you or you doing the same thing. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. As although toxic positivity is often well-meaning and well-intentioned, it can actually oftentimes leave you feeling misunderstood and not heard. It can come across as really condescending and discouraging and be really quite isolating. And as Christians, we can actually often fall into that trap. But Paul here is, is what he's referring to is not a refusal or a ignoring of present reality what he's talking about is he's actually inviting us to experience a deeper reality one that can both accept and acknowledge 
current challenges and pressures, but yet still delight in God because our future is secure in God and that will never change. And whilst our present problems may persist and even seem overwhelming at times, those problems will not last forever. And that is a truth that we can all hold on to. And that is a a reason to rejoice even in the current challenges that we're going through. And the second condition, that's found in verse 6, and it reads, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And as we started talking about anxiety, I found it quite reassuring to know that even in those New Testament times, anxiety was still a thing then. And in fact, a Bible commentator made this statement that anxiety and prayer are more opposed to each other than fire and water. That's anxiety and prayer. They're more opposed to each other than, anxiety, than fire and water. And in fact, when I first heard that statement, what I thought is that they were opposites or rather that they couldn't exist in the same place at the same time. But actually, when you think about fire and water, they can. They can exist at the same place and at the same time. The only thing is they can't exist in the same place at the same time for too long because eventually one will cancel the other one out. It's just a matter of intensity or an amount. And so too for us. In every situation we find ourselves in, we're presented with a choice. We can either worry about it or pray about it and trust God. Now, when we do pray about it, it doesn't mean that everything we pray for will immediately turn out how we expect or how we want. But what it does mean is that we can trust God. We can trust him to be sovereign, to know what's best for us and to ultimately do what's best for us as well. But it is indeed a command. And we're free to choose. Trusting in God is definitely the better way to live. It doesn't mean it won't always be easy In fact, oftentimes it will be tough, but it's definitely the better way to live. So now we have the third condition, and this is about what you focus on. And verse 8 reads, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And when I was looking into this, there was uh, two things that came to mind. Firstly, there was a Star Wars quote, which I'm quite excited about because actually in a few days we're going to be going to um, Disneyland to see the Star Wars um, experience, which uh, Tim is really, really excited about. He's, uh, yes, very excited about. So we're also excited, but not as much as him. But the quote goes something like this, your focus determines your reality. And I think we can all appreciate that to be true. So whatever you focus on, whatever you spend your mind um, really focusing on, essentially, that's what determines your reality. It determines your outlook, how you see the world, how you interact with the world. So whatever you're focusing on has that impact. And the second concept is something called doom scrolling. And if you've never heard of doom scrolling, it's quite a new word. Um, And in fact, in 2020, the Oxford Dictionary named it the word of the year. And what it means 
is a practice of obsessively checking the news for updates, especially on social media feeds. And as you're doing so, you have the expectation that the news you're looking will be bad. And then that sense of dread from looking at bad news actually makes you search even more. And as you do so, you end up in an endless cycle of searching for bad news, seeing bad news, and feeling bad about it. It's actually the reason why I don't watch the news at all anymore. However, what I do have, hypocritically, is Twitter, or X as it's known, which is even worse. Um, And when I am doom-scrolling, I can actually feel my brain and outlook being programmed with a negativity. So here, Paul's challenge to focus on what is good uh, really doesn't surprise me. Because again, when I'm looking through uh, Twitter and I'm just seeing all the negativity, there's definitely nothing that is lovely, nothing that is pure, or at least most not of the time anyway. Um, but what I do feel is a distinct lack of peace once I put down my phone. Now, what I'm suggesting here is not that you ignore all the negative things in your life and live only for good vibes, because that's just not realistic and it wouldn't work. But what Paul here is saying to us is that we should focus on the things that are right and the things that are pure. It's more about where you choose to spend your time and attention because where you do will definitely have an impact on the amount of peace that you experience. So the fourth and final condition is all about practicing. And verse 9 reads, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So the focus here is about what you spend your time doing and what you're absorbing as a result. And here Paul offers his own life as an example that the Philippians should imitate and practice. And really what's pivotal here is the the concept itself of practice. Now for the last three years I've been learning to play the trumpet. (laughs) And um, I can confidently say that I know how to play the trumpet. But if you ask me if I was good at playing the trumpet or if I played well, I probably wouldn't be so confident. And that comes down to, to be honest, I don't really practice as much as I should do. However, that all changed, I would say, about three or four months ago when I got a a new teacher. So now I'm practicing a whole lot more. But with my new teacher... What he challenges me on is about what I practice and how. Because as I mentioned, it's really the last three years that I spent learning to uh, play the trumpet, mainly during COVID when I didn't have a teacher. So a lot of things I picked up were from watching YouTube videos and just random things that I found on the internet. So when I'm having my lessons, my teacher, and he says, oh, what have you been practicing? And I say, I've been doing this or doing that. He would say, why? And I would say, well, because I watched a video about it. He said, stop doing that. He says most times. Or he might say, actually, that's a really good thing to do, but just not for now. You should only practice that at a certain time. And that's the thing about practice. It's not just about practicing, it's about how you practice. A bit like that's really common saying that practice makes perfect. But in fact, a better saying is practice makes permanent. And we can all appreciate that because we're all practicing things all the time. Each day, each week, each month, there's things that we're doing, we're practicing, we're building up habits. 
And those things are shaping our lives. And that's really the power of practice. It goes beyond knowledge. It actually shapes and transforms us. So the command that Paul is giving us here about practicing, it's when you think about it in terms of Christian living, it's not just about what you know, it's about actually practicing and being a Christian. It's about what you do day in, day out. It's about getting it wrong, making mistakes, repenting and starting again. And as we do, we're transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. So those are the four conditions that Paul outlines in order for us to experience a peace promise in these verses. They were, number one, to rejoice in the Lord always. Number two, to pray and give thanks and not to be anxious. To focus on what is true, what is noble, what is lovely and praiseworthy. And finally, practice the example of Christian living. And what I love about these things is that they're really practical. They cover what to do, what to think, and spiritual practices and disciplines that we can adopt. And personally, that works really well for me because I'm a practical type of person. But it also reminds me of a great quote by Dallas Willard. And the quote says, Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Because these conditions, they're not, what they are is simply part of our effort. They're not things that we do um, that we can earn our relationship with God. They're just simply things that we do in response to what he's already done for us. They're not what makes us a Christian or even bring us into relationship with God. They're definitely not the things that bring us peace in themselves. What brings us peace is only through Jesus Christ and him, being re- him reconciling us to God and making peace. It's him taking on our weakness, our shame, our fear, our anxiety and our sin. He suffered all of those things so that we can have peace with God through him. It's all because of his death and resurrection on the cross that we can experience that peace. And the third point is actually Jesus himself, he is the personification of peace because he perfectly fulfilled those conditions of peace that we spoke about earlier. Because Jesus always lived with joy with God his Father. And it was actually joy that led him to the cross, as it says in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. And even in the most stressful, the most difficult situation, Jesus prayerfully surrendered himself to the will of God, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And as he was speaking about his own actions in John, 15, sorry, John 5, verse 19, he said he only, sees, he only does what he sees the Father doing speaking of his actions and the fact that he was imitating and practicing what the Father did. So Jesus perfectly fulfilled those conditions of peace and as a result, we can have peace both in and through him. So now we really can rejoice and give everything over to God in prayer because Jesus was the one who gave up himself for us. And as I've been speaking about these conditions, what I don't want you to do is simply see them as a list of things that you need to do or even having willpower to try and muster up the effort to get these things done. Because if you just see them as another list, then they themselves are going to be another burden to you and they're going to add actually more weight. But instead, see those conditions as a means of responding 
to what Jesus has already done and accepting his finished work on the cross and having peace with God. So let's now take the opportunity to really ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to fulfill these conditions and to truly experience the peace of God which is promised to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the peace that you won for us. And in fact, you said in your word that all those who are weary and heavy laden, who are weighed down with burdens, should come to you and experience your rest and your peace. So Lord, we ask, as we have heard your word today, for all of us that feel burdened, for all of us that feel overwhelmed, that we will experience your peace. We will experience a rest that comes only from you. Help us to experience that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.